Today's episode is brought to you by Cars.com. With over 2 million vehicles and 50,000 more added every day, Cars.com will match you with the perfect car for you, your budget, your life, your style. And if you're ready to say goodbye to your current car, Cars.com will get you an instant offer to cash it in. Just start by entering your license plate and get matched with a local dealer who will write you the check. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, just go to cars.com. It's magical. Jordan is on best. Harper's on Miller. They play together, they believe. Um, if there's Levert, it's cold. Levert, back in. Speed. Welcome to another edition of the Indie Cornrows podcast. This is your host, Mark Schindler. As always, before we get started today, if you have not already, please be sure to go rate and review us over on Apple Podcasts. We want to hear from you and get your feedback. Uh, and of course, read us over Indie Cornrows. Caitlin Cooper wrote a fantastic piece on both Miles Turner and Demonis Sabonis. And some of their play over the weekend that I think is is more than worth your read before the well, I, I almost said game tonight. Tomorrow's gonna be an off day when you're hearing this. So you'll have plenty of time to read it. There's no excuse not to. Um, I'm really excited to be joined by Caitlin because we are starting back up. I can't believe it's already starting again. Uh starting back up two questions to uh, which we're doing every Tuesday, the the third Tuesday of the month. Uh Caitlin. First of all, how are you doing today? And second of all, do you want to do you want to provide some background for anybody who is a new listener to two questions to us? I'm doing well. It actually will have to specify like we do understand how calendars work. We know that this isn't the third Tuesday this specific month, but we wanted to give ourselves an actual sample size of real games to talk about instead of doing it uh, at the end of preseason last week. But typically that's going to be our target date. This is our monthly podcast series. It's called Two Questions Too Ha in reference to former PA announcer Reb Porter's classic call, the mandatory informing of fans at the final two minutes of games, two minutes too ha. So that's where the title comes from. And basically what the concept is, is each of us come up with two questions that we ask each other. And then it just kind of becomes a brainstorming session about the current state of the Pacers and some of the topics and storylines that are surrounding the team. And generally I put, uh, uh inquiry out on twitter to ask fans some of the stuff that they might want to know because both of us would rather talk about what you guys want to hear about rather than you know maybe something that's interesting to me but isn't interesting to you guys so if you have questions you want us to talk about next month for the november ed- edition send them to either one of us hit us up in the comments at indie corn rose and we can go ahead and get started I, I want mark to ask the question first because i just want to hear what you have to come up with so yeah the question number are... one yeah my first question i'm going a little bit um, you know, it, maybe it's not quite on the forefront of everyone's minds, but it's something I've been thinking about a lot. Where are we at with TJ McConnell? And I guess that's a good uh, bridge into talking about the bench unit in general, too, because that's been an issue for the Pacers. The first three games is the bench unit and less about that more. So um, it's not that TJ McConnell is playing terribly or anything. I think some people have, you know, I, well, I guess based on some of the mentions that I've been getting, it seems like people think he's playing terribly. I don't think so. I think it's been a lot more of his utilization is just very different. Um, like we saw a lot of herky jerkiness in, in the fourth quarter the other night when, and granted Miami is a very good defensive team, but also ending possessions with, with TJ in the corner is, is really rough. And that, that happened multiple times, especially in the game against Miami. 
That was something that was prescient in preseason. Um, and it was something that, you know, you and I had talked about tracking into the year. Where are you at with that coming in? Because it's uh, it's definitely felt a little bit awkward uh, in how they're managing in the half court. Right. Yeah. The prevalence of off ball McConnell was a talking point from preseason for sure that I talked about in the one about Sabonis being in the corner, which they've switched some of that up a little bit. Mm -hmm. I thought that they might after preseason be putting TJ in more of like the split actions or, you know, this little things that you could have flipped where, you know, he he's the inbounder and, and you're giving the ball to Duarte and vice versa. Um, I think part of the problem, like, especially with what you're referencing there in the game against Miami was like the third quarter offense, which we'll get into later, but they only scored eight points in the third quarter. Miami's defense is very tough. They like to load up at the blocks and the elbows. They make it very hard to penetrate into the lane. So a lot of the stuff was ending up on the perimeter, which then makes it a little bit harder to play TJ. But part of the problem was they finally went to the post there at the beginning of the fourth quarter, which I thought they needed to do sooner. And when they did, TJ McConnell was the post entry passer. He throws it into Sabonis and clears out along the baseline. And Tyler Harrow was just like, okay, see ya, bud. Yeah. I, I'm doubling, which is a good thing. Like I, you want Sabonis to get doubled in the post and Sabonis to his credit right away, recognized it through the dart while you're throwing a dart to McConnell in the corner. Like if that's Chris Duarte or if that's Brogdon, that's a good shot, a corner three, you know, a very high shot in today's game. So um, then you're just having to pass out of it. And there was a lot of that going on against the Wizards as well late where, you know, he's shaking up from the corner to the wing, which is a good thing to create an empty corner pick and roll. But the defender just doesn't care. Um, they ran double drags and he was in the opposite corner. It's like, why can't he be the person handling the ball in those situations? But some of it is somewhat semantics because in this offense, you know, you're supposed to make the extra pass. So as soon as even if he was handling and he made the initial pass, he's going to be off ball at some point. So then my question becomes, which this is one thing that I thought worked well in last year's system. Obviously, he was on ball a lot and he was probing and he was attacking baseline. And Rick Carlisle's been doing more of that. They've been having McConnell run more pistol. But when he was off ball in last year's system, he was typically stationed at the opposite slot rather than the corner. Mm -hmm. And the one thing that TJ McConnell does really well when he's playing off ball is he does the go and catch rather than catch and go. So he he attacks into the space behind those slot defenders if they come off of him at the nail and then he can get behind a defender and, and grab the ball and then be spraying out or be making a layup and now most of the time if he's off ball he relocates into the corners and that's a lot harder to do from that location when somebody's just completely off of you in the lane so I feel like there's still stuff that he can do off ball and that he's shown in the past that he can do whether that's you know using him as a screener in some of those situations or other stuff that just isn't really happening where it's become more stagnant so I struggle with a little bit but then the other piece of me is like you know I understand where they're coming from because I think in the Wizards game he was out there in the closing lineup predominantly because of what the defense was for the prior three quarters and then the fact that they were playing almost exclusively two three I think Rick Carlisle wanted TJ in because they wanted him at the top of the zone mm -hmm. they wanted him to be guarding up there because he was playing that better than the other players so then it becomes okay if you want him in in that situation then you got to reorient a little bit of what you're doing offensively but some of me wants to not overreact to it because it's like okay if this roster was healthy we're not even talking about this like we would still be talking about some of the you know, 
overall places he's being stationed and being used in the earlier portion of the game. But like closing lineup, TJ McConnell isn't going to be a thing when, when Karras and TJ Warren come back, like that's, I don't even think that's going to be a consideration, but um, to, to the fans point about some of his play, I did look up this morning and you and I had talked about it in the past that like he shot lights out on non-restricted area twos last year. Like Mm -hmm. the only people I think in the NBA who shot better on those shots was Jokic, Trey Young, and I think one other person, he was above 55% on those little shots. And right now that's dropped by about 10 percentage points where it's just not falling for him at the same clip. So if some of those go, we're probably viewing him a little bit differently, but I think, yeah. I think what he does with pace and some of the stuff that he can do will still fit in the system. They just need to tweak some of what they're doing, but I don't know what your thoughts are. No. Yeah. I'm in the same, same Avenue as you. Um, and it feels like, uh, I don't want to say to get the most out of the bench. They got to get the most out of TJ, but in a way like, okay, you paid him the full MLE. Um, I, it, I understand that he's worked on his three and he worked on it with his dad has been noted on, on the broadcast, but I just, defenses don't care. Like yeah. it, it, just to be blunt with it. So unless you're getting more actions with him on the ball, which we've seen be effective. Um, I just don't know how useful it is to have TJ out there. And I, th- that's a little bit of a harsh way to put it, but it, you're getting a lot less of what you could out of TJ and it's impacting your offense in a way that is definitely negative. Um, so I think, you know, again, it's, it's early on. And, and like you mentioned with having, uh, you know, more players back and healthy, it, it's something that, that will stay on the radar, but isn't you know necessarily a, a huge warrant of concern where it feeds into and and like you mentioned about him coming in and being starting off in the corner instead of being the one you know setting up some actions, have you noticed the same a little bit with the starting lineup or not even just the starting lineup, but even if okay, let's say Malcolm's in the game, um, I'm okay with you know if you want Chris Duarte to, to run an action, he's capable of doing it. We'll talk about it more, I'm sure, but some of the reads he's been making out of pick and roll have been fantastic and stuff that we didn't really expect coming in. Um, but when Tory Craig and Jeremy Lamb start being the guys who are, are running out, uh, actions at the top of the key um, and handling the ball instead of Malcolm Brogdon or, or TJ McConnell or, or Chris Duarte on, their, on the court. It's just a little bit head scratching for me, at least against a team like Miami, because that was when it felt like a lot of the turnovers were happening. And again, I don't really have the numbers to back it up because it's so early in the year, but um, like when, uh, I mean, there were multiple times where actions got stuck uh, on handoffs uh, early because they were like, oh, hey, this is not Malcolm Brogdon. This isn't TJ McConnell. Like, this is not a guy who's fantastic handling the ball and, and reading the defense if they're pressured and we're, we're going to attack the attack the DHO. I don't know if you're feeling the same with that, but I feel like there's definitely been a little bit of clunkiness with it. Again, like, not to go haywire on it. The offense honestly has been pretty solid um, minus the third quarter, but uh, it's it's definitely stuck out for me. Well, Torrey Craig in general, and I don't know how much of it is his shoulder. Like he's been kind of rough all the way around in the yeah. last two games. I mean, his his three pointer, I think. I mean, I think he's shooting like fifteen percent from three. Yeah, I don't have that number right in front of me. But um, and his overall field goal percentage just isn't great. I mean, we talked about that too. That you know, I don't need a lot of Torrey Craig ball handler, but it's it's kind of a balancing act between like we wanting to run the system that you envision for the roster when it's healthy and doing some of what best suits the players that you have in the roles right now, because in part, I think you want 
the whole of your roster getting used to the way that you want to play so that when Karis and TJ are back in, I'm okay with them doing those things. Mm -hmm. Both of them are capable of doing those things. And then the other three starters are, you know, getting used to how to move off of each other when you're doing it versus, you know, Tori and Jeremy. I mean, I will say, I thought Jeremy had, you know, several decent moments in that heat game aside from just uh, drilling the three threes pretty close together. But um, yeah, I think some of it is, is asking probably a little bit more than what Tori is capable of, but I can kind of see where they're coming from. My quibble with what some of that offense was stems from probably something else, but I think that's going to be one of my questions later. So I won't expand too much. On I think that. I know exactly what you get, what you're getting at. And that's, yeah, that's something I've been thinking about too. Um, well, yes. Do you, or do you want me to ask another question or are you up? No, I'll, I'll go ahead and go because right. this was one that people asked a lot. Let's just talk about it. What's happening in the third quarters. Um, what's going on with the offense. They obviously scored eight points against the Miami heat. I believe, let me see. I have the numbers here. They had scored eight points in the third quarter against the heat 23 points against the wizards, which I didn't think the offense was too bad against Washington. Yeah. It's just, I was a lot more concerned in that game with the fact that they gave up 73 points in the first half. Mm-hmm. I think the defense overall was the bigger issue there. And then, Charlotte, they scored 13 points in the third quarter. And in total in the third quarter, they are shooting two of 24 from three. So 8.3% from three and have taken 43% of their shots in that quarter as threes while committing, let's 17 total turnovers. So I'll let you go ahead and say what some of what you think is going on in the third quarter. Do you think it's fluky? Do you think it's who's out there, what the opponent's doing, you know, any, anything that you want to say. It definitely hasn't been fluky to me. Um, I think I'll say that. Uh, a lot of it, and I don't want to just say it's settling for jumpers, but that's how it feels. Like a lot of the times, uh, especially in that third quarter against uh, Miami, I mean, everything was a jumper, uh, it felt like. And, and especially, too, in the first game, uh, just a lot of relying on uh, on taking threes. And I understand, you know, there's, there's value in taking threes and pacing. Um, you'd think for, you know, a team that, that struggles to score in that quarter, that the issue would be maybe they're, they're going too slow or something. And I, it, it's felt to me at times, like the team is going a little bit too fast in transition and, and less about in transition, but like once they get into the half court, it just feels like they rush themselves. Um, that's, that's been some of the clunkiness with turnovers. Um, that's just been some of the awkwardness in general. Uh, and I, I don't know, maybe part of that's just trying to get into a new system, but it feels like, I mean, Rick is very, very heavily, um, you know, prompted threes and pace, uh, which I, again, makes sense. I understand it. The team is currently shoot. I think I'm trying, I have the numbers right in front of me. They're, they're ninth and three point frequency, which feels low. Um, but you know, the, the makes haven't really been there, but I just, again, I think a lot of it is, uh, things kind of dying down on drives, uh, not as many drives and downhill actions happening. Um, and also too, something that I, I was trying to look through some of the tracking data yesterday to see if I could get a better idea of this. Um, one thing that does stand out, like the team is 25th in rim frequency right now, uh, which is mm-hmm. like the polar opposite of last year, obviously. And again, volatile, small sample size. But what stood out is how little Domas is getting and Domas is getting post-ups. Don't get me wrong. He's still top 10 in the league in post-ups per game, but it's less about that they're happening and more where they're coming from for me. Like it just feels like a lot less of him at the elbow or a lot less of him 
lower in the block and and drawing in the defense like that and and more stuff with him happening higher up in the post or, or out at the top of the key. And I, I don't know if you would agree with that, but it feels like, you know, they're trying to give themselves a runway in some ways, but also it's just not there and it would help for them to have a deeper starting point or at least having Domas as a deeper starting point. Um, I don't know if that's making sense flowing off my tongue. It, it made sense in my head when I said it, but um, that's some of the stuff that's really stood out for me because I think, you know, you, you miss that a little bit with, with Domas um, having deeper post position and, and how that impacts the court. Yeah. I mean, that's what I mentioned earlier about, you know, throwing the darts to TJ McConnell in the corner when they finally started posting him in the fourth. Um, yeah. They've opened games. Like they opened the game against the wizards with a low post reaction set with a back screen with miles streaking down the middle to get that dunk right off the spot. So they have ran some post up plays. And I know that this is a sticky spot with a lot of the fan base who didn't, who constantly equated him with posting up with clogging the lane. And my quibble with that always was they were number one in the league in room frequency last year and were either first or second in the Eastern conference and drives If him being in the post was clogging up the lane that badly. Those two things wouldn't have been possible. And the other thing that you're not really thinking about when he posts up is he's drawing a double team. So yeah. that's allowing cutters to get really high percentage shots at the rim or it's opening up a bigger gap. So um, I, yeah, sorry. I, I don't mean to cut up. Can I actually elaborate on that? Cause that was something I was thinking about too. And, and I didn't mean to cut you off, but like a lot of people seem to equate it to like, Oh, if Delmas is posted up, he's just trying to isolate on Rudy Gobert or something. And a lot of times when that happens, it, it, at least, you know, just like harkening back on that, that jazz game last year, like whenever things stuck, it was because, or when, when Delmas was going quote unquote, iso mode, it was more because the opposing defense didn't care about some of the shooters who were out there. So they were so focused in on able and able to have one foot in the paint. Um, and without also without doubling because they were comfortable having somebody guard him, um, like having Domas suck things in the way that he does in the paint almost opens up things in a way that, that you wouldn't anticipate. Like if it, a lot of the drives happened last year because of Domas, and I don't mean that in a way as like guys are incapable, like Malcolm's a fantastic driver, but it, screen assist can be annoying, especially with how much they've been brought up, you know, in relation to Utah. But um, in general, like th th there's just not a lot of guys on the team who are capable of getting downhill separation on their own consistently off the dribble. And without Domas setting a screen that opens up, because frankly, like Miles is not an awesome screener. He's gotten a lot better at it. But like Domas is one of the three or four best screeners in the NBA. And that opens up a lot of things. Um Point being, I just mean like like you were mentioning, like what he does opens up a lot of things in terms of getting to the rim and, and opening up driving lanes. Sorry, I didn't I, I didn't mean to cut you off. I was just thinking about that. No, and yeah, and I mean I talked about that numerous times around that jazz game last year. The problem wasn't that they were opposing Sabonis. I think some of Bjorkren's thinking in that game was they wanted him to be drawing fouls, but the problem was is that they were running absolutely no split cuts around it. If you don't have a physical advantage in those situations, you gotta run screening action which they're they're running splits around the high post but beside the point in the in that third quarter i think partially what has happened in charlotte and miami and i showed the shot chart from charlotte where they had no shot attempts in the paint during the third quarter against charlotte is that it's a combination of about three or four things i think that the pacers are new in this system mm -hmm. so what you're able to catch people off guard with in the first half isn't quite as surprising and when you come out of halftime, I think coaches are more prepared for some of what they're doing in the five out setting. And two, I think you hit the nail on the head when you said that 
it's a weird balance because there was times against Miami where they got stops and I felt like they really needed to be pushing the ball up the floor and running and they, they weren't. And then in the reverse of that, when they're in the half court, they were getting way too sped up, like plays that they were running. They weren't running through to completion. Like they weren't throwing the boomerang pass to the other half of the court to make them have to shift. They were just attacking right into it and going into the teeth of what their wall is. I don't really think that's going to be super effective against the heat's defense. And then a lot of it was like, you're saying like, it's just, there's definitely value to using Sabonis up top and five out against certain types of coverages. And when you do have people that struggle to get downhill running, you know, a pin down into Chicago is the way to help them get there, but the heat were switching. So if you're switching and you're loading up the blocks, which was the same situation in the bubble and the playoffs against Miami, you got to do something to reshape that coverage. So that's why I tweeted during the third quarter, like where art thou restricted area, close range touches. Like you needed to either be, putting him in the dunker spot or putting him on the block against those switches, not necessarily for him just to go one-on-one against Jimmy or whatever, but when he was getting those catches, they were coming over to double. So then you're getting a paint touch three, whether it's, you know, him in the post or somebody driving and being able to kick out, like you can still get threes. It's just the quality of what those threes are then becomes very different. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's also about what pieces were out there around him, but I did really like, I felt like they did a better job of it once they got to overtime. The other thing is, is I think sometimes we just automatically equate like, oh, you're putting a big in the dunker spot. And now again, the lane is clogged. And why would you want to do that when they're already packing the paint? Well, because if you put Sabonis in the dunker spot, you're creating a much wider gap out on the perimeter that Brogdon can drive into. So now if they want to come pinch and they come pinch, that's a much longer recovery back out to their people versus if he's just attacking at the very top of the key, they're only having to go a couple feet from the two people that are at the slot. Like, so the driving angle, much more space to drive into. And then once you get there and there was a switch, like what happened in overtime. Okay. Well now Duncan Robinson is defending Sabonis in the dunker spot. And that's just an easy layup right up to the rim. So the fact that they reshaped and put him one in on a couple possessions, I thought was helpful. So they did adjust, but then the other element of it too, is if you're in a situation where you're throwing bricks, like they were in the third quarter, like they were in the third quarter against Charlotte, then you have either, you know, if, if, if Miles is playing in the dunker or Sabonis is playing in the dunker, whoever it is, they can get those offensive rebounds because they're right at the basket versus, you know, if you're spread five out, it's, you're going to have to crash in and you may not be able to come up with that. So I felt like they made it easier for Miami to load up during that quarter. And they just kind of kept going with what they were going through. And then they weren't completely running their sets through to completion. So I, it's not that I'm panning at all the five out. There's definite benefits to that. You're opening up the paint to get drives. There's benefits to playing basketball in a lot of different ways. And they have used the post. I just thought in that particular matchup, it's like what we've always said and what you mentioned about TJ before. Like, it's great that Sabonis has stepped out and hit threes. He's shot like, what, 46% from three I have here. You know, tremendous that he made the ones that he did. Having the jab step one on the wing was like a revelation against Charlotte. That makes him a more complete player. But in general, a lot of people don't necessarily come out, whether it's he or Miles on a pick and pop three to defend them. Just like if McConnell's standing there, you know, his release is so slow, people aren't going to go out there. So what are you doing to reshape some of the pieces on the floor? I think all the pieces of the offense that they're doing are good and are valuable in, in different ways. It's just about how you implement them against what teams you implement them and when you're implementing them. And sometimes when they come out at halftime, Charlotte's defense was better. Miami's defense was even better than it was in the first half. And you might have to do a couple things differently, but yeah, I mean, Sabonis was one of the best people in terms of rim frequency last year. They that's, 
what the Pacers geared their offense around was getting to the rim and kicking out. And I think there's benefits to what, what Carlisle is doing over some of that. Like, I mean, I will go on a little bit mini rant here. Like, I don't know where we've gotten to on the broadcast where we're constantly like, oh, the Pacers are moving so much more this year. Like they led the league in half court movement on offense last year. Like they were moving. It just, it was a lot more highly choreographed. So it became more predictable. And in this Mm -hmm. system, they are running a lot of play calls, but there's a lot more randomness built into it. So I think that's a good thing in the long run. It's just, you know, it, it hasn't necessarily allowed Sabonis to get as many close range chain with touches, which is okay in certain matchups, but not necessarily great for scoring against Miami. But that's our long winded thing about the third quarter offense and, and piggybacking off that. Now that we head into the third question, are you at all nervous that our energy and our overall podcast is going to go downhill now that we're on the third question? <laughs> uh, I hope not. At, at least our, I mean, maybe we'll pin it like the Miami game and the, the, the offense will, will suck, but our defense will still hold. So we'll make it work. Um, I do have, I do have a good feeling about our third question. I, I, I think I have a decent one. Yes. So uh, on the third question, I am up, correct? Yes. All right. Um, I guess the good place to go from here, uh, with the defense in general, how are you feeling about the way that it's starting to shape up? I know that's a not a a very broad question, but um, you know, you you wrote a really good piece about how how the zone is could be changed. And I think we saw some of those changes um, specifically with how, how, how Domas shifted out on defense. And that's less about playing zone. That's more about, you know, coming out and hedging and um, his activity there, uh, but them playing together. I, because one of the questions I have right now, and again, small sample size, but uh, they're getting torched from three right now. And it's less about like, they've defended corners really well. I think they're only allowing about 32% from the corners, which is, quite good, but they're allowing teams to shoot for just under 41% from three. And it doesn't feel completely like it's just hot shooting. Um, like a lot of open threes seem to be getting let up in the system from above the break. And I understand like to a degree, it's better to let teams shoot from above the break. Um, it's, a, it's a lower percentage shot, but at the same time, the looks have just felt very open at, at times. Um, I, I wonder how you're feeling about that. And that can be more of a conversation about the defense too, but it's, it's a good starting point. Right. So I generally tend to judge three point defense more by the attempts and they're not allowing a ton of attempts. I do agree with you that they've allowed mm. a lot of open, but th- that was kind of the story of last year too. Like they didn't allow a lot of attempts, but opponents shot a pretty high percentage and that was one thing I did like about the Bjorken system is that sometimes they would kind of X out on the strong side, which Mm. that isn't really applicable here. But um, I think most of it, honestly, I think when you watch that wizards game back, uh, it all goes back to the point of attack defense. I think that the point of attack defense was very problematic in that game against the wizards. And so if you're letting people get into the paint, it's, it's, it's paint threes. Once they get two feet into the paint and they can spray out, that's a lot harder to recover out and guard. Um, especially with some of the personnel that they have available out there, if they're playing two bigs at once. So if you look at the difference between that wizards game and uh, the game against Miami, the one thing that I found interesting is kind of the flip of this is that 
they allowed the league's highest opponent rim frequency last year. It was like 35%. Mm -hmm. That was a problem all year long. It impacted their rebounding. It impacted a lot of stuff. There was funneling, 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 and then, you know, giving up the odd man advantages because they were pressing out top. Well, against the Wizards, like even when you watch them guarding in Spain, they were trying to defend that straight up and dropping, but they weren't switching the two guards, which I felt like they needed to switch the two guards because people were just kind of gliding into the basket. They didn't give up a ton of rim shots against the Wizards, but I think that the Wizards shot over, I think it was 83% at the rim in that game. So they were just really kind of getting to do whatever they wanted to off of drives. And then it's either a shot at the rim or they're kicking out. And like you said, they're giving up the high percentage at three, however many points the wizards even ended up scoring in that game. Like some of the defense from both teams in that game, like you watch it back and you're just like, what are you doing here? Like, so obviously like, I know they talked about after the game that like, we're going to look at our defense, evaluate what we're doing and, some of it I'm sure is opponent specific. They've altered some of their coverages from game to game, even in preseason, but then they come out against Miami and they were hedging with the five man, which they were not doing against the wizards. Like, and not just with Sabonis, they're having miles do it too. So you come out and you're hedging on every pick and roll with Jimmy Butler and all of them with Tyler hero, mainly those two. And they were the ball handlers. And, and, you know, some of this is the benefit of not having Kyle Lowry available. I'm not going to pretend like that didn't, you know, impact how the Pacers were playing on defense, but the Heat took 17 total shots at the rim in that game and were eight of 17. So 18.6% of their total field goal attempts were at the rim, which they do a lot from the perimeter to begin with. But still, like, that's just a lot better deterrence when you're out jumping above the level and you can deter somebody away from turning the corner. That takes an impact in what type of threes you're generating and just not having to deal with people getting straight at the basket. So that was an adjustment. Obviously, they held the Heat to a low point total. And, you know, I don't think that would have, like, the times Bjorkren tried that last year, which I highlighted in the article, which wasn't very often. It was against, you know, the likes of Luka and Steph Curry. And I think they did some of it against Dame, and they tried it against the Clippers in games where Sabonis was at solo five. You really couldn't do it because he just really struggled to get up there and get up above quickly enough and still be able to recover back to the middleman off the slip. And he was just moving so fluidly against that and the heat. I mean, you and I had brought it up in preseason when they played the Cavs and on the very first play, he pounced and got that steal from Colin Sexton. He did that two or three times against Miami. He was better straight up in transition and around the basket whenever he was defending. Like, I definitely think he's made, I'm not going to say it's perfect 100% of the time, but by his standard, comparing him to himself, the amount of nimbleness he's showing as a shuffler and having to move laterally is a lot better than what we saw last year when doing some of that stuff is why I would ask of Nate Bjorken, like, why are you doing it? Because like an example, which I lightly touched on in, in the piece that people can read is that they, they started doing the hedging and the blitzing against Luca in that game against the Mavericks when miles was out. And eventually Bjorken put, Sabonis on Josh Green because they had no length for the low man. That was Doug McDermott. So they wanted to put Sabonis over there, but also so he wouldn't be involved in the screening action. So he wasn't guarding Perzingis or Willie Cauley Stein for a really long time because they didn't want to have to bring him up to blitz because it was that dicey. So the fact that he was doing it that much against Jimmy Butler and Bam, I think, says quite a lot. Now we'll see if that's something that they continue with the hedge scheme moving forward. But I also think that's why they leaned as heavily on O'Shea late in that game. It wasn't just because O'Shea made shots and was rebounding and was just playing overall well. It's because if you're going to be up top blitzing, 
putting him at the four when he has such good wide um, weak side instincts sliding back and forth as the low man, he made a lot of really good plays and that department as well on the defensive end. So be interested to see if they keep adjusting the system from game to game, or if they're now leaning more towards, we might need to have, you know, either two on the ball or somebody getting up there because in that wizards game, I'm not trying to be rude here, but I'm pretty sure that Brogdon and Jeremy lamb spent most of the night in jail behind their dude in that game. Like they were just so much in rear view pursuit. Like it was, it was fairly concerning. And it's like, you know, how are you going to adjust this to the point where it isn't the case like last season where you're just constantly at the rim having to defend everything and, and whether that's tenable or not. So I know that that went on a long winding path from the three point percentage thing, but sometimes three point percentage can be noisy. So I, I'm somewhat encouraged that they're at least limiting the attempts right now. This is Advertiser Content, brought to you by Frito-Lay. Hello, I'm Chip Murphy, here to get you ready for the big tournament. Tonight we'll break down... We break down who will be cutting... Cut! What are you two doing? Sorry, Chip. Prez here got his feathers ruffled when I told him Ruffles has zero chance of winning the title. And I was letting Dip know that she is not taking into account Ruffles' iconic ridges. Guys! It's March. We have to start talking about the tournament. We are. It is the 2023 Frito-Lay Snack-It. We're talking about big-time matchups between Cheetos, Smart Food, Lay's, Sun Chips, and more. Just head to the Frito-Lay Snack Bracket and vote for your favorite chip, pretzel, or dip for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. This sounds great. Keep up the good work. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends 4-3-2023. Void wherever hit Here's worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. Yeah, no, exactly. That's a great point. Um, I think I, I wanted to just hit on that because it's a, you know, a, a good starting point. Like, like you mentioned, just looking at this year compared to last year, um, they allow they're currently they're allowing 10 less 10 percent less shots at the rim in 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 the shot tie which is massive compared to last year um and and like you mentioned with the coverage versatility that's something i'm very excited about because uh a it's almost out of necessity in some ways because like you mentioned even when uh you know even all right let's say when karis gets back karis is not an awesome point of attack defender he has length but his, his hips are pretty high and Frankly, his his instincts aren't just aren't really amazing at the point of attack. We're being completely honest. Um, I think w- would you say TJ is probably? I mean, TJ Warren in terms of just size and all around skill set is probably the best point of attack defender on the team. I mean, he's probably the best on ball defender. I yeah. think he can do some at the point of attack. I've brought that up in the past. I mean, they had him do some of that. He he took yeah. possessions against Devin Booker. They eventually put him against Jamal Murray a couple years ago. So I think that's yeah, definitely an option. Is definitely a work in progress still. Um, but the yeah, the in terms of just like on ball, it's solid. But like this team has been eviscerated by small point guards. Like Ish Smith looked like he was he was 26 instead of 34. Um Howell Neto was was fantastic. I mean, Tyler Hero was more on pull-ups and less on getting into the rim, but still, like you saw how much uh Malcolm and, and Jeremy and just whoever was put on um, on those guys was really struggling in terms of screen navigation and and, and staying in front. Um, so in terms of like like we're mentioning, Domas adding this to his game and Miles being the defender that he is just 
A, it makes it a little bit more tenable to have them together on court defensively. Um, and again, it's less about them, but more about, okay, it's a lot harder to have them on court defensively if your point of attack defense has been as bad as it was at, at points. Um, so like adding in what, what Domas can do here now, if that's going to become something more standard, that's that's a win. Um, it just adds a, another wrinkle that I think is really important to what the team can do moving forward. Um, I don't really know where else I was going with that, but yeah, I, ju- I, I just think that the the signs from the defense have been really encouraging again, three games, but the progress that we've seen in them and, and some of the adjustments being made already have been encouraging. But again, also as a, I, I kind of noted there, like some of the reason why it's so important that Domas is doing this is because of the weakness of the roster in terms of point of attack defense. Right. And I think that it's been, I mean, it's somewhat of a mixed bag because you saying that mm-hmm. about, you know, getting TJ and Karis back, I do think that Justin doesn't look like, I mean, he looked better against Miami at the end of the game. He hasn't looked like he's moving at a hundred percent because of that angle. Yeah. And obviously he hasn't been part of the two closing lineups in the prior two games before the heat in part, because he retweaked it. And like, that would be an option that they would have had more against the wizards. If not for that, because we know the prior season that Brogdon was mostly defending wings and Justin was doing a lot more of that. And I also wonder, like, again, with Terry Craig in the shoulder, like, is that impacting him staying skinny through screens, like not wanting to get a hit there? Because there was times when like the one possession I showed on my timeline, when they were defending in Spain, like he called it out, which again, goes back to like, you know, which way do you want to defend that? If it was me personally, I would want to defend it by dropping Sabonis and Miles back, having them hop around the back screen and then have the two guards that are defending you, you step out and get in front of the ball. And then the other guard switches back to the, to the back screener when they pop out the three. Um, I think that that's probably what would work best. And the one time Torrey Craig communicated that he told Sabonis, Hey, the back screen's coming. He pointed that he was going to jump out. And then like, he, he barely took one step. Like he didn't remotely mm. cut off the driving angle. So I don't know how much the injuries to those two guys who are reputationally better defenders has also played a role in what some of the defense would be like. Um, I'm cautiously optimistic for the reason that you said that they have been willing to adjust things. And when I wrote the initial article about zone, like the zone in the fourth quarter against the wizards, I believe in total against the wizards, they played 17 possessions of zone and the wizards went scoreless on 10 of them. So that was producing better results than the man to man, though there were a couple like egregious breakdowns where the, where the wizards just didn't make a shot. But in general, the way they're setting the zone makes more sense than the way it was being set a year ago for the people that are out on the court, particularly when Sabonis and Miles are playing together. They're doing better with the bump downs. They're playing their guys on the corners, kind of like what I wrote about in the Summer League piece. Those guys are typically up above the checks and and taking the wing passes quicker. That makes those rotations and the closeouts shorter. But um, but I, I was not, a, if you would have asked me the same question at halftime of the Washington game, I would have been like, okay, this team has said their number one priority was defense. And we're now a game and a half into this thing. And it is looking pretty messy, but uh, so we'll see again, like they're playing Milwaukee tonight, you know, the whole, well, they will have played Milwaukee by the time everyone listens to this podcast. And perhaps everything we've said by then will sound really stupid in retrospect. That's entirely possible. See how they match up and who ends up guarding Giannis and what type of pick and roll coverages they use. But I am encouraged that they're at least willing to tinker and see what exactly all these guys can do and what's going to work best for the roster. If something isn't working, I mean, 
I think it's far from perfect, but it definitely looked better against Miami than what we had seen. Yeah, no, I'm right there with you. Oh, and um, one other thing that I did want to toss in there is that not only like having Sabonis be able to hedge on some of the side pick and rolls, but like he was doing this at the five, like miles wasn't playing pretty much in the second half. So like in years prior, people have always talked about, you know, they're giving up tons of stuff at the rim. Well, one way to not give up tons of stuff at the rim, if you don't have your rim protector in is to prevent the ball from getting to the rim. So they're doing better at that. And then the other piece of it is, is if you are playing him in five out as you know, devil's advocate to what we were saying about the post earlier. If you are playing him in five out, he's going to be able to get back in transition a lot quicker because he has less distance to cover. So when he gets back in transition, he was doing a good job at stopping some of that at the rim where he would have had to cover a lot more ground if he was pursuing the offensive glass or if he was underneath the basket. So there's somewhat of a give or take there, but definitely something to consider when in the minutes when he's just out there by himself. Yeah, most definitely. Um, well, I guess that transitions us to our last question. Uh, Everyone's favorite question, I'm sure, is coming. <laughs> yeah, I do think we uh, we survived the third quarter. Did we? Did we stay above even? I think we. Stayed I, at I least think above we even. did. Yeah. I mean, we only I'm... went on two rambling tangents. Yeah, both of them were probably mine. So, um, <laughs> stop it. So, uh, so what is your last question? My last question that I'm sure will be everyone's favorite is: Does it involve um, two bigs? Uh, somewhat, not completely. Just what do you think of the various closing lineups that we have seen? And just to give listeners a reference in case they didn't see or aren't remembering, when they played the Hornets, they closed with Brogdon, Duarte, Jeremy Lamb, Torrey Craig, and Sabonis. When they closed against the Wizards, they toggled between McConnell and Jeremy Lamb, along with Brogdon, Duarte, and both bigs being Turner and Sabonis. And then in Miami, they closed with Brogdon, Duarte, Justin, O'Shea, and Sabonis. So what are your general thoughts? You can talk about them as independent games in general, how those minutes distributions coming up, the fact that they have not closed two games with Miles on the court, um, and that they've kind of gone with not necessarily a big forward at the three spot. Like you probably could make the option in a couple of those cases to maybe, you know, somebody asked this, I don't know what I, what you're going to think about it, but somebody asked like, well, they could play Torrey or O'Shea at the three along with both bigs, but they're more leaning towards TJ or Jeremy Lamb. And what's your thoughts about that? So any direction you want to go in? Yeah, uh, I think a good starting point, and this is again, not to be harsh, but I just have not understood some of the, um, and, and I, Jeremy does bring things like, He's forced a lot of turnovers, which has been great, but we know that about him. Like he's good at, you know, he can back tap for steals at times. Like he can get deflections if he's in the right place, but he just gets blown by a lot and he makes rough decisions in terms of his off ball awareness uh, on defense. So I haven't completely understood having him on court as much as as he, as he's been on court. Um, I, I mean, I understand part of it, like the, and of course, you know, the, coaching staff and front office aren't going to say it, but I'm sure part of it is like they have to up his trade value because it was, I mean, it was reported that the Pacers were trying to shop him before the year started and there was not uh, a deal that that really came across for them that made sense. Um, but in terms of, you know, you're, you're definitely losing a little bit with him. Like, I, I do think there is something to having size and length out on the court, but again, like positioning is normally a little bit more important than that. Um and the offense just hasn't quite been there for him. I will say, of course, though, like what he brought in the Miami game without his absolute heater in 
what was that the second quarter uh like they're not winning that game like coming down and hitting three uh, yeah three threes in that quarter two of them back to back um there was i mean and that was during a stretch where the offense didn't look great so having that was absolutely huge and you can't discount that but i just wonder how much you're giving up without it especially considering uh the rest of his, his like his drive game hasn't really been there he isn't getting to the line the same way he used to last year and again small sample size it's coming in different areas but um you're not getting quite the same from him like he it felt like the first time he ever missed an elbow jumper in his career uh but where are you at with Jeremy i guess because that's that's my my first real uh question i guess with it or, or bigger talking point with uh with closing lineups yeah, I mean, there's so many things to break down from just the closing lineups alone. Um, yeah, I can't say that if you would have asked me before the season started, like, of the people who are available, I, I think it would have taken me a lot of names to get to Jeremy being in yeah. the closing lineup, despite the fact that he did make those big shots in the preseason game late. Um, I do think that what you said might be a tiny piece of it that we have to consider that when all these people are healthy, Chris Duarte certainly is going to still be playing whether that's in the starting lineup or the bench so then where are jeremy's minutes necessarily going to come from so you get him playing time now he is in a contract year and i would imagine that you know you might at least consider moving him unless people don't fully get healthy or other moves are made later on so that might be somewhat of a consideration but in that Charlotte game, he did not play very well offensively and defensively late. He was getting beat quite a lot. So that one felt a little bit weird for me, but it seems pretty clear at this point in time, like so much of the system is what I've said in the past, dribble, pass, and shoot. And in theory, like what Jeremy showed in the preseason game, he can be one of those guys. And they didn't have a lot of options. Like, I think some of this would have been different, like what we saw against Miami. If Justin was feeling better and was 100%, I think they probably would have sided with Justin over Jeremy, but like, there's just not a lot of healthy bodies. And I don't think I personally, I don't know where you stand. Tory Craig can guard, like, you know, if, if, if they're playing the Clippers, I would feel okay. If you locked possessions against Paul George, I don't really want O'Shea guarding threes. He can do mm-hmm. some switching, but like, I don't know that I, I think his natural position is far more the four. Yeah. But, um, that was an option they could have gone in, but, uh, I think some of it was also predicated by, you know, the accountability standpoint. And like I said, Jeremy didn't play great offensively, but miles did not have a very good game in the opener against Charlotte and Charlotte was playing small. So I think that Rick wanted to play small, but that's like a whole nother piece of this is that, you know, every game is unique. They all take on their own character, the feel for that game, who's playing well, what you want to do against the opponent, but they have downsized already in two games. Yeah. So aside from Jeremy, we do need to like, this is a talking point, whether they want to act like it's a talking point or not, it is like you have two bigs. This is, you know, the never ending story. I understand that we talk about it all the time, but miles has basically not played in two fourth quarters. Now he talked about, you know, ahead of preseason and media day. I, I believe he was asked that direct question about how he sees himself meshing with Sabonis, And he did, I believe mentioned that he wanted to be on the court at the end of games. And I'm not even saying that Rick Carlisle made the wrong decision or that there should be scrutiny of what happened there. Again, like miles had more turnovers in that game than made field goals. And, 
against Miami, he had struggles on both ends of the floor. O'Shea played really well. And for the reason I said before, if they were going to be playing a blitz scheme, having a, somebody at the four Scott spot who can move really well sideline to sideline made sense. Like logically, I can understand where they're coming from, but it goes back to the same talking point. Like your best players need to be able to play together in the crucial moments of games. Like I don't, I can't say that I would have ex- expected that like, oh, we're going to close a game with Jeremy instead of Miles Turner, Turner, you know, like if you had asked me that before the season started, I would have been like, yeah, that's probably not going to be a thing that happens. Um, even if I can somewhat explain it from a basketball standpoint, but um, I just, I just don't think that this arrangement is going to be completely ideal. Cause I'll ask you this question. Like, I know it's only been three games, but from what you've seen of Chris Duarte, if Karis Levert, and TJ Warren are healthy. Do you think that Chris Duarte will be closing games later in the season? Uh, yeah, I think he has to, in a sense. And I don't, like you're saying, I don't, it's not even a slight to Miles or Domas. It's just like, dude, like, unless, unless you can factor in a way to like, and I thought, like, like you mentioned, it's so telling when you play against the Hornets, a team that I think, I mean, for, for most of their closing lineup, PJ Washington's their center and he's six, seven, like uh, if you can't find a way to punt it, like if, if you have two guys who are six eleven that are both starting caliber players, one of them's an all-star one's defensive player of the year candidate. If you can't find a way to make them work together and punish a team that is playing with, you know, that downsized and granted, it's not that simple, but in a sense, like, okay, that if you have that, uh, that size and ability to attack on, on the interior or, or just in, in any way, you've got to find a way to, to make it um, saying, make it work is the wrong way to put it. But it, in some ways it feels like they haven't necessarily tried to make it work. Like they've made it work during, uh, during the games, but to close the games, they, ha- they haven't really attempted it uh, or not even that they haven't attempted it, but like, that's, it's pretty clear that it's it's not their go-to. Like they don't want to necessarily close with both guys. And again, part of it is with Miami, Miles in foul trouble. Um, but again, like there's just the awkwardness with it. And Rick was asked about it after the game against Miami, and he said that it wasn't awkward. And you know, talked about how committed Miles is to the team and um, him, you know, just being a huge team guy. And and I get that, but also like. Miles is a guy who should be closing games. Um, but because for whatever reason, and not just for whatever reason, like it's hard to play two bigs together, like that's not how they view it. Um, and it is awkward, just to be frank. And it's felt awkward. And I think maybe on the surface, it doesn't look like it. But in in reading, you know, reading between the lines, it definitely it, it definitely comes across a little bit awkward. Well, and then the other piece of it is, is it's just like, I mean, what I said about media day, we also like miles had his comment after his 40 point outing, like full disclosure, like I, he kind of admitted, like, I didn't like making sacrifices the last two years. Like I did it because that's what was better for the team. And and quite frankly, like a lot of that clip that they shared on Valley sports was like kind of hard to follow. Like I didn't really completely understand his uh, train of thought there, but at the same time, it seems pretty clear in addition to the video that he posted on opening night where he talked about like what the perception of him is and that he's going to show that he can do other things besides play defense, that it seems like he very much wants to broaden 
what he thinks is like limited perceptions of him. So even if he's perfectly fine with it, which he might be, maybe he goes in the locker room and is just high-fiving people and we won the game. Like even if, even if both of them, whichever one of them's playing, even if they're both fine with it, it's still the point being that your two best players, two of your best players need to be able to play together either. Like that's just where I'm at with it. So the fact that they're already downsizing with limited bodies and Karis and TJ aren't even playing, I just, I have a hard time believing that unless the matchup really calls for them to stay big, that it isn't going to be the case later on in the year that all four of Brogdon, Lavert, Duarte, and TJ Warren aren't going to be out there if they're all healthy. Most yeah. likely with most likely with Sabonis. Like I'm just I'm having trouble seeing that. And again, like it's not even me completely criticizing Rick Carla. I think there is value in having accountability and playing like, you know rewarding O'Shea for playing well. I see where you're coming from. I see where you're coming from a tactical standpoint in those two games. And on the flip side, Miles played spectacularly against the Wizards. And Sabonis played really well against the Wizards. They both played. They played in the fourth quarter. They played in overtime. That's what they did. That might happen more later on, but I'm just kind of having trouble seeing that playing out that way the longer the season plays out. And then it just becomes like, is this the best way to manage the roster at that point in time? Um, so some of it's been a little bit hard to follow, but, um, we talked about the TJ McConnell piece in closing lineups as well, since he was out there against Washington, but another piece that somebody asked about, and since O'Shea was part of one of the closing lineups, are you at all surprised that in the last two games, they have played a deeper rotation that it is O'Shea that's getting the nod, not Isaiah Jackson? Uh, yeah, I have been surprised um, just because based on preseason and the way that everything was talked about, that's not what 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 I was coming in expecting for this year. Um, I think Isaiah's played what, like a, less than a minute altogether um, in, in the regular season. Um, but also, I mean, to o- O'Shea's credit, he was so good. Um, yeah. <laughs> like the, the, even to like we, we talked about how his handle looked at the end of summer league and he was asked about it. Um, at the end of the games, like, yeah, it was something I really worked on this offseason. It shows like he had that, um, you know, he took that, that, that sidestep slash, uh, step yes. back. And I was like, oh my God, like O'Shea's doing it. Like he, he pulled it out and it's like one of the ones where you're kind of like gritting your teeth. Like, is it going to, going to go in and it, and it swished. And I was like, oh my God, it's happening. Um, like he just looks like a player who I think I'm at the point where, um, a, I, I, I mean, I know that him and Tori technically play different positions, but like, I think he should be ahead of Tori in, in the rotation. Um, and I just don't think that there's a reason that he should DNP CD again. And, and Rick said, you know, in, uh, I think it was pregame or, uh, yeah, I think it was pregame or it might've been practice um, after the first game that he was like, you know, not playing O'Shea was, was a total mistake, you know, going back and looking at the, at, at the Hornets game. And I mean, that's, that's borne out. I don't think O'Shea is a quote unquote like 18 and nine guy every night, but yeah, like just the fact that you have somebody with the versatility to do that while still being a, a positive for you and in, in what he was playing defensively, like that was huge. Right. And I think another piece of it too, is something else that he does really well that they used a lot in the two games that they won in Miami last year is they had a lot of unscripted cutting in that game. Mm-hmm. And without Doug McDermott, they lack in that department. Like they don't have as many people who are good at, at finding cuts that aren't 
automatically part of the the offensive scheme and O'Shea does that well like that was one of their few scores they had and the third quarter was him going and kind of slipping a flare screen and getting into into the paint and Sabonis passing him open and I thought that was a really cool moment that he also brings that as well I mean they talked about him glowingly during preseason so I'm not completely shocked that he found his way um, out into the rotation first. I thought he had some rough minutes defensively against the Wizards, but that was pretty much true of the entire team. Mm-hmm. But against Miami, like it's so conflicting for me because I don't know how you feel, but they're like, he's like one of the most exciting players to watch when he does something because like he plays so passionately that a few times when he made the threes, he was like standing there and posing or stunting. And like part <laughs> of me's like, heck yeah, like that was awesome. And then the other part of me's like, oh no, he's not getting back in defense now. But, um, um, yeah, so to answer the the person's question, and I'm sorry I don't have your name in front of me about it, like um, my point with, I think with Ajax is, is I thought he looked good enough in preseason that on a lot of rosters he would probably be playing right now, but this goes back and I hate to do it again, but we're circling back to the big conversation. When you're playing tag team with those guys and you're staggering them, the other aspect of that, in addition, like, like even if we want to pretend it's not remotely awkward, like even if we're going to say that, Goga has not played a minute and Ajax has played yeah. two minutes. Like, and again, I'm not saying that you're routing your team strategy around Goga Batadze. I'm not suggesting that, but he did have some good moments in the final preseason game. And these are two people that you are invested in, in the sense that they were your own first round picks. And it's not like there isn't time for Isaiah Jackson to get minutes eventually. And I'm sure if he isn't in the rotation that he'll play some in the G league this year, but it just how you're balancing all four of those guys at once is a talking point, whether they want to act like it is or isn't because two of them aren't playing at all and it's burying them in the rotation. So it's kind of like, if you see yourselves playing better, you know, with an O'Shea at the four or with Tory Craig, you know, eventually, cause this is another piece of it too. When TJ Warren is healthy, and if, if he looks like himself, I would imagine that TJ Warren's going to be logging minutes at the four as well. Yeah. So like how much opportunity really is there for those uh, two main bigs to be playing together, even though I did like a lot of what they did against the Wizards. Like just as an aside, because we haven't talked about it, what Miles Turner did against the Wizards was like the clouds parting and the sun rays coming down. And it was everything that I've ever wanted him to be and one glorious display. Like, and I understand, like, watch the clips. The Wizards were not guarding him for the majority of that game. I don't know what they were doing. I don't know why Montrez Harrell was just trotting down the court with his back turned and why they were just like loading up with three players on Jeremy Lamb when Miles had already dropped 30. I don't know the answers to any of those questions. All I know is, is that Miles decided if you aren't going to guard me, I'm going to make you regret the fact that you aren't going to guard me. And that is like what I've wanted for him to embrace for the past two years that like you can find the seams in the defense, whether you're being, you know, whether there's plays specifically being called for miles or not. And as you saw later in the game, eventually the wizards did adjust and they were switching against him, which made it harder to be, directly involving him in some of what they were doing but like whether they call plays for him or not there's stuff that he can be doing if he's wide open like another moment that was great he's in the corner his guy goes clear across to cover Sabonis in two-man game they rotate a smaller guy against him and you just realize like I'm huge I'm not even going to dip the ball and I'm just going to shoot it over the top of you because I have confidence I'm going to make this shot and like yes when you're open shoot the ball and it was just I'm sorry for this long rant people that didn't even have to do with this question but it was just like, that's the actualized Miles Turner. 
no, I uh, I felt the same as you, Caitlin. It was uh, watching that game was kind of a, an out of body experience for me. Like I, I'm obviously, you know, I at sometimes I'm probably annoying at how much I say I'm not a fan. Uh, I just want people to know I take it seriously. But, um, you know, as somebody who I, I think I've watched like 75, 80 percent of Miles' games in every single game in the last three years. Um, like seeing it just felt like everything, like you mentioned, like the clouds part, like everything just hit perfectly for him that night. Um, and I just feel like in some ways this is hopefully going to carry over the rest of the season in terms of his mentality and aggression, because you noted it in your article, like, and, and as you just said, like it wasn't him necessarily having things scripted for him. It just was him being aggressive and, and taking what the defense was giving him. And it just like, I mean, he was perfect absolutely perfect in how he needed to play um he didn't record scratch on it on a single shot from three he just took all of them when i (laughs) actually i woke up my dog because i i just i've never thought in my life i was going to see miles turner shoot a 30 footer without hesitation just stepped into a technically a logo shot uh especially if you if you take into account your conspiracy theory about the logos logo Um, miles (laughs) It was just awesome. And I like I, I was talking about this with Tom uh, after the game. Like it just it, even even looking at the next game, it felt like he had some of that aggression still. Obviously, the, the fouls didn't help. Uh, I thought some of the foul calls were a little bit questionable. Um, you know, that that one on Jimmy Butler, like he wasn't even into him. I didn't really understand that. But point being, like, uh, I just think that hopefully that's going to be part of him moving forward. You know, having having that that, that mentality and mindset because it's been uh then what's needed to be there. Um, and it was, uh, it was just awesome to watch. I know we're, we both went on our tangents, but it was necessary. Yeah, I, I wasn't on the post game pod that night. So I just felt like I needed to give credit where it was due because I think sometimes it just gets so much focused on like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, he's averaging a third of the touches or, you know, Nate be this or Nate McMillan that, or, you know, whatever it is. And it's like, okay, he didn't like, he didn't even, he was nowhere near Sabonis's touches in that Wizards game, and he's not going to be because they shouldn't be like for obvious trigger man reasons. That isn't where the total number of touches is going to come from. It's about what he's going to do with them, and that's you know he did a lot with what he was given in that game. So um, yeah, you, you'd like to see a little bit less up and down, and some of that's obviously you know the Heat's defense was a lot better than Washington's and the way that they were doing stuff and obviously the one time on the break where miles just like pile drove into PJ Tucker <laughs> instead of passing it out to Justin, like that type of stuff, you still want to clean up. And, and he didn't have a great night in the opening night, but just his overall, um, like I said, like if people aren't going to guard you, make them regret the fact that they didn't guard you. Like you can still have an effect when your teammates are drawing two defenders and be making them regret those shifts in gravity. And I thought he did a really good job of that. So it wasn't a question. I just wanted to give him credit. Yeah. Well, it was, it was fantastic. I appreciate it. Um, Kayla, did you have anything else you want to hit on before we get out of here? No, I mean, I think we've thoroughly hashed out these three, these broad amount of games that we've had to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. We do have a gosh, what, like 20 games before the next time that we do one of these. So uh, we have a, we have a lot. Well, no, probably not 20, like 15, somewhere around there. Maybe we'll even have Karis sample size by then. (laughs) cross my fingers please don't don't, don't uh like knock on wood or something right now uh are you suggesting i'm, I'm jumping the gun um well i'm just saying uh, t- today is the fourth game and you're supposed to miss four games i don't know we're gonna find out um i'm very hopeful he's gonna be back and, and healthy soon because 
he's so fun to watch. Good dude. Um, and the team definitely needs him. Like, I think we were talking about this a little bit before we got on the idea of um, Malcolm and, and Chris Duarte getting to play off of Chris. I mean, not geez, Chris off of Karis is, is really enticing. Um, I think that's just going to be a very fun thing to watch. And obviously there's going to be some jerkiness to it, but I'm excited for it nonetheless. As am I. Well, Caitlin, this has been absolutely fantastic to everyone listening. Thank you for listening. If you made it this far with us, I think you did. We had a, this was a pretty good episode, especially since we made it through the third quarter. We had no Um, fluff. There was no fluff. No fluff. None at all. Um, It was was an enjoyable echo chamber, if I must say so myself, but Caitlin, I appreciate you to everyone listening. We appreciate you guys. Please like, let us know what you think of the pod. We want to hear any thoughts, feedback. Um, We do this because we, we, Hey, I mean, you and I just love talking about basketball. Like I was, laying in bed at two o'clock in the morning last night thinking about basketball. Like, I don't know. I just watched John Morant, like turn into a pull-up shooter right before my eyes last night. And it was just kind of enamoring. Uh, like that's the stuff that we think about. And we want to share it with you guys and talk about basketball and, um, you know, have fun and hope, you know, maybe send us your recipes. Who knows? Maybe we'll have another recipe that we can take care of in a couple months. Uh, that'll do all that'll do it for us today. Uh, we appreciate you guys have a good rest of your day and we, uh, we will be back with, Plenty of podcasts and articles coming up in the coming days.